Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. James Alexander, the co-founder of Zopa, gives an insight from his business experience, having developed a profitable internet-based business and also a new way of borrowing and lending money. Thank you very much for coming uh, uh, to this. Uh, this is the first of the Taysom lecturers, made possible by the generosity of one of our ex-students who graduated in the 1970s. When you look at how successful uh, our students have been in the past, it is really, uh, really amazing. And it's even more amazing, perhaps, that, that our current crop of students are going to be just as successful, I'm sure. I um, would like to thank you all for coming, particularly uh, at this time of the year and such short notice. We were very lucky to be able to get James on, on two grounds. First of all, the short notice, but given that, somebody too who is enormously successful. And I think this is very important, because at this time in, in the history of the world, uh, we've got a couple of problems. You may have noticed them out there. And the success, the cure for those problems, has to be innovation, has to be entrepreneurship, has to be business. And today, I look forward to finding out how. Thank you, Jane. Uh, good evening. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, um, and even more delighted having just met John Taysom, uh, who, who's generous. Uh, um, his generous gift has allowed this evening and my recommendation for after this lecture is go and speak to John because I, I think he's probably got a lot of good stories as well um, what, what I'd like to do this evening um, is use this time to take you on a personal journey not because I particularly enjoy talking about myself but because I hope um, it might give you something as you set off on your careers or as you develop your careers uh, that, that may help you to, to flourish uh, more than you otherwise might um, as John's just said, we're clearly living in, a, in an era of turbulence, um, you know, be it credit crunch, be it global warming, um, be it rapidly changing business models. But for me, as a very naive, optimistic Sagittarian, uh, uh, I'm a huge optimist that this is actually now uh, an era of great opportunity. I'd like to um, split, split my talk into, into four parts. Um, uh, illustrate a very random walk that I took from university uh, through to uh, joining Egg um, at the beginning of 2000, uh, a journey in more detail from Egg to creating Zopa, uh, then a similar journey from uh, leaving Zopa to uh, joining and helping uh, Green Thing um, through to w what I do today, um, and use all of that to uh, illustrate, as I say, some, some lessons that I've learned along the way. Um, but before all of that, a very uh, quick story. Um, how many of you have heard of Zopa? Some. Well, there you go. Um, I'll, I'll come on and explain what it is, but in a nutshell, it's kind of like eBay, but for money. So on eBay, people buy and sell stuff. On Zopa, people effectively lend and borrow money. Um, but about six weeks before we launched, um, my marketing director, uh, a lovely lady called Sarah Matthews, came and tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, James, we've got a problem. I said, Sarah, we've got so many problems, it's not true. What's this problem? And she said, well, I'm your marketing director. Um, we still haven't got a brand. We still haven't got a name, and we're launching in six we really, really need one. And I don't know how many of you have had to create uh, your own projects or um, perhaps some of you have been lucky enough to create company names or project names or report names or whatever it might be. And it's one of those things that I always find in, you know, really, really hard, particularly when you're passionate about it, to find a name that you think is really important. And as a team, we've probably been working on the project for about uh, a year beforehand. 
um, and had tried lots of names and none of them had quite worked. And we literally decided that now was the time. So we locked ourselves in a room and truly did this and said, we're not leaving until we, until we get a name. And somehow in, in the middle of that conversation, I, I, I dredged from the back of my mind um, a negotiation term that I'd learned when I was at business school, uh, term, uh, a business school called ZOPA. And ZOPA stands for the Zone of Possible Agreement. And it's a negotiation term, which basically means if I'm trying to sell you something, um, there'll be a price below which I won't be willing to sell. And if you're trying to buy something, there'll be a price up to which you're willing to pay. And if those two areas overlap, then that's with Oprah. And hey, presto, as long as you stay talking long enough, then everyone ought to be happy. And we thought this was marvellous, because as you'll hear later, that's exactly what our business did. Miraculously, someone went online and found that we could get this four-letter domain name um, for 500 quid off someone in, in, in Holland, and we bought it literally there and then. Um, we rang up our designer friends and said, look, we've got this term, it's called Zopa. And they said, oh, it's going to be wonderful. We can, yeah, we'd love a Z and an O and a P and A. We can make great big interlocking circles. It'll look marvellous for you. Um, we then wandered around the office that we were squatting in at the time. Um, and we asked the people there, what do you think? This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to call it. And half the people hated it and half the people loved it. So we thought, oh, that's okay. It's good to have a bit of grit in the system. And then six weeks later, we launched. And within about five minutes of launching, we started to get the first of many hundreds and then thousands of emails coming in from Russia. Because in Russian, Zopa means asshole. <laughs> so um, I, I, uh, I was at university up in London. Uh, in fact, I think we, I used to play hockey and certainly remember losing heavily to Bath uh, in, in, in one of our matches um, in the in the British University's um, championship. And when I, um, when I uh, left UCL, I went and joined a strategy consultancy called LEK Consulting. Um, if any of you have heard of companies like Bain and McKinsey and BCG, it's sort of like them, but not quite as high-end. Very analytical, uh, sort of very anal in some ways, a very analytical high-end uh, sort of consultancy. Worked there for a couple of years, learned all sorts of things that were really helpful uh, in my, in my uh, later business life. But it was very constraining. You were sort of, it was a bit like sort of your, your imagination of going and working for a city investment bank. You sort of learn a lot, but they get their pound of flesh and work you jolly hard. Um, and I didn't always enjoy the experience, I have to confess. Um, I left there and went and uh, joined um, a colleague that I previously worked with at WH Smith uh, in their group strategy function, uh, working on companies like Waterstones. Um, and WH Smith News and, and learned lots there from the leaders that I was working with. Um, people like Richard Handover, who then went on to be CEO of Smith's. Uh, Alan Giles, who went on to be um, CEO of HMV uh, Media. Um, had a lovely time there. Um, went to INSEAD uh, and did, a, did an MBA there. Um, I came back, worked a little bit longer for LEK. Um, and then I went and joined EGG. Um, and it was strange. When I was at LEK, one of, my, one of the cases that I was working on, uh, we did a lot of work for the cooperative bank. Um, and I, I, I worked on, on their business a lot and, and helped them create a business called Smile, which is their sort of, uh, uh, I guess, online current account. And it was sort of part of the rage when all the banks were creating these new online services. And I really enjoyed it. And when I was doing that, I, I observed this other company that had sprung up a little bit before called Egg that just seemed to be doing really, really interesting things. And um, somehow I, I got an interview there. And I got interviewed by four, um, four people. Uh, I got interviewed by uh, a guy called Mike Harris, uh, who uh, John knows well because I think he's an investor in, in his current company. And Mike's a serial entrepreneur. Previously, founded Mercury, which was the first sort of British 
um, competitor uh, to, to BT. Um, he then founded First Direct and then went on to found Egg. Um, and Mike was just one of the sort of irrepressible characters that you, you, I, I personally found sort of quite irresistible uh, in, in, in those early days. Um, I met a, a mad lady called Jean Tomlin, who's now HR director for uh, the Olympics, uh, 2012 Olympics, which is one of those fascinating roles because you watch your, your HR go from sort of zero to, to thousands and then back to, back to zero the day after. So one of these things with a very finite project. Um, a lady called Stacey Cartwright, who's now FD at um, Burberry. Um, uh, and a guy called Richard Duval, who was the other co-founder of Egg. And having met these people, I just decided I wanted to work at Egg. And the thing was, they couldn't tell me what my job was going to be. And I actually resigned from LEK, and the partners hoiked to me, and they said, James, you're mad. You, you're mad. Why on earth are you leaving? You could stay here. You could be a partner in another three years. And I sort of said, well, I've, I've met these wonderful people, and I want to go and join this company called Egg. And they said, well, you're definitely mad, because it's got a business model that we can't understand, and it won't work. And you don't even know what job you're going to. You know, why on earth are you going? And I just said, well, I want to go. It just feels like the right thing to do. And against their better wisdom, and for better or for worse, that's what I did. I had a wonderful time uh, at Egg, uh, doing new things, creating new things. I launched many of their um, sort of new services on mobile, um, on digital TV. Um, I then had a really dream job, um, which was to, I was asked to take the Egg brand, to go to America, um, to find some consumers that like the Egg brand, um, and then to create them a new financial services company and forget everything that Egg had done in the UK. And it was like this sort of, for me, it was like sort of being, I don't know, given the keys to a sweet shop. It was just like a dream. Go find some people that like a brand and then create. Um, and built up a wonderful team based in San Francisco. Um, and we came up with what I still think today would be a great idea. And unfortunately, meantime, Egg, Egg had run into trouble uh, on its expansion elsewhere into France. And so the project team... Uh, sort of got called back to the UK, um, and, and egg, egg started imploding uh, quite quite shortly thereafter. Um, now, all of that is a sort of precursor to to a decision I had at that point in time. What what was I going to do? Was I going to stay at Egg um, or do something else? But I, I think I'd learned in my time in America um, that it was just wonderful to feel incredible freedom and and to really generate a passion for what you were doing. And I ended up joining up with uh, a guy called um, Richard Duval, um, uh, who was one of the founders of Egg. Um, and Richard and I decided we wanted to create businesses together. Uh, the only problem was we didn't have any ideas. Um, but Richard was a clever guy, uh, and he said, I'll tell you what, James, what we need to do is to go and create a vision of the future, um, not in some kind of arrogant intellectual sense, but because if we did have a vision of the future, then, then maybe by sort of living with that vision, perhaps we could create something new. Um, and so we went and sat in his barn, uh, just outside London, um, and we spent about six months there. Um, and uh, we gathered around us um, two, two groups of people, um, a group of ethnographers and a group of socio-economists. Now, who, who's come across ethnographers or ethnography? Someone. Okay, well, I don't know what your definition of uh, ethnographers is, but for me, they're, sort of, they're, they're slightly strange people. And um, they basically specialise in a form of, of, of research and insight um, in which they, they go and live with people um, and, and they, they observe them and they observe their behaviour um, and try and understand their behaviour by really getting inside what's going on in their mind to make them behave in a particular way. So perhaps if they were observing me, they might see me, um, I don't know, standing here in front of you. They might see me as the CEO of a company. They might see me... 
uh, being a friend with someone. They might see me at home with my kids. They might see me out with my wife. Um, they might follow me to Tesco. Um, and they literally go live with people for a week and, and follow them around, and then they say they can conclude all sorts of things off the back of it. Now, clearly it's not a panacea, but it's, it's quite an interesting form of research. And we got really interested in these guys because they were saying to us, and this was back in 2003, that they were seeing a group of people uh, that we later called freeformers uh, breaking away from society and beginning, uh, and beginning to lead very different lives. And these people were best defined by their own self-reliance. They'd sort of given up on the institutions of society looking after them. They no longer trusted politics. They no longer trusted companies to be around to pay them a pension. They didn't believe the state was going to pay them a pension. These were the kind of people that more often than not were pulling away from corporate employment and perhaps um, setting up other business lines on the side. Um, These were the kind of people that typically were more interested in much more authentic lives. They cared more about the clothes they wore, the food they ate and where it came from. Um, They they were much more collaborative um, in in how they saw the world. Um, Some values that were very dear to them were community, um, um, transparency, uh, control, um, and ethicality, if ethicality is a word. And they really cared about all of these things. And we got interested in them because they were saying that they were seeing these people, or more and more of them. And when we started doing some quant research around their attitudes and behaviours, we saw that it was a growing group. Um, both in the UK and also in some other countries around the world. At the same time, we were working with some socio-economists. Now, sadly, lots of you are going to be economists, aren't you? How many people here are economists? Okay, I'm not an economist. I need to make that really clear. Um, But my understanding was that these socio-economists basically looked at great big long-term macroeconomic trends and looked at how those impacted uh, the whole of society. Um, So they would go back to... I've got a... I've got a slide. They would go back to, um, go up one. Yeah, they would go back to. Um, uh, how many of you have heard of Schumpeter and his waves of creative destruction? Lots of people. Okay, so they, they basically we worked with a lady called Professor Carlotta Perez, who's based at Cambridge University, um, and Carlotta's work basically looks at waves of creative destruction and how it impacts the whole of society. So everything from the schools to the way we design our jobs, the way we construct our homes, uh, the way we legislate, the way policies are, are given. And we got really into her thinking about how, how capitalist economies developed through these ways of creative destruction and how that had happened time after time after time since the Industrial Revolution. And when we put Carlotta together with the um, ethnographers, um, she said, well, of course, of course, you, know, you, you ethnographers would be seeing this type of people because these are the people that are beginning to lead the life that's going to become popular over the next 20 to 30 years. And we thought, well, that's fascinating. If we could really understand this group and really get into their attitudes, then perhaps that would be helpful. And we also started looking around and saying, well, if these, if these freeformers um, and, and, and this new era were starting to emerge, then surely we should see that showing up in companies. Um, and, of course, as we looked around... Um, we could see lots of, lots of new companies popping up um, in which the new growth seemed to be coming from much more individualised formats, um, which seemed to put the user uh, at, at the heart of the experience. It seemed to put the user um, much more in control. They, they often embrace the whole community of users um, with collaboration, where actually the more people that use them, the more benefit came out for everyone, uh, including the organisation that was running it. And, and you'll be very familiar with... Um, yeah, with, 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 with many of these organisations. They allowed for more personal expression, more choice. Um, and 
always, always, always put the user much more in control. Now, as we looked at this, we started to spend more time with, with freeformers. Um, and because we had a background in financial services, we started to ask them a little bit more about their money. Um, and uh, as we spent time with them, we, we, we asked them a series of questions. Um, firstly, we asked them about investing. And these three formers told us, they sort of said, well, in, in investing. We said, what's investing to you? And they said, investing is gambling. And this was back in 2003. And we said, what do you mean investing is gambling? That wasn't the response that we expected to hear. And they sort of said, well, investing occurs to us a bit like you know, you're told to invest. Everyone says that's a good thing to do to save for your future. Um, but I get some money, I give it away to someone, they give it away to someone else, they seem to get paid a lot. It gets invested in something I don't really understand. Um, every now and again, probably every year, I get written to with a statement. I don't really understand what's on the statement. Periodically, I sit down with, you know, with my spouse or I sit down myself and really try and get my head around it. And at the end of it, sometimes I see I'm up, sometimes I see I'm down. It feels a bit like gambling. And we said, well, that's interesting. What are you doing about that? And they said, well... What we're doing now is we're, we're beginning to um, invest in other things. So at the time, it was things like buy-to-let. Uh, at the time, it was things like knocking down the back of their home to create a more, uh, you know, a, a new extension on the back of their home, perhaps a sort of new, um, more communal sort of living space um, that, that fitted more with today's society. Um, and the commonality that we saw in these things was that people were looking for more tangible forms of investment that they could touch, they could feel, that they could um, be more proximate to. Um, at the same time, we were asking them about borrowing. Um, and they said two things for us, this group of three formers. Firstly, they said, banks don't get to people like us. And we said, what do you mean? And they said, well, um, I don't know, an example might be, they might be a reporter. So someone said, look, I'm a reporter, I'm really successful. You know, I write for The Guardian, I do some freelance work over here, I do some work for companies over here. But when I apply for a loan to a bank, they just don't recognise me. And the reason that banks didn't recognise them was that Typically, banks were set up for the old era in which everyone was expected to you know, live quite a homogenised life and go through quite a homogenised career. And, and those rules didn't apply anymore. So if you applied to a bank and you were changing jobs the whole time or if you had multiple income sources, it just didn't fit the bank's models. And so these people were getting incredibly frustrated because they're getting turned away. Um, the other thing they said to us is when you apply for a personal loan, um, particularly as one of these people, um, the, the experience is just ludicrous. And we sort of said, well, tell us about it. And they sort of said, well, you, whichever sort of channel you go through, you always have to fill out a form. So you fill out a coupon, you, you phone up, and you give a bunch of details down the phone, you walk into a branch, you go online, answer a whole bunch of questions. And at the end of it, someone takes effectively the form away, um, and they go off and do something with it. They then come back, and sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no. And when they say yes... You, you quite often have to pay a different amount to that which you thought you were applying for. So your cost of your loan is different to what you thought the headline rate was. And when they say no, you've got no idea why they've said no. Like, how weird is that? Imagine going into a shoe shop. You know, there's no shoes anywhere in the shop. You go up to a counter and say, can I have size 10 blank? It's off into the storeroom and comes back with size 7 red and says that'll be 150 quid. It's a ludicrous, ludicrous retail experience. Um, at the same time, we were, we were marvelling at eBay. Um, and eBay was going through its, its sort of big growth curve in the UK at the time. Um, and we were thinking, God, this is marvellous. Um, yeah, on, eBay, on eBay, people buy and sell stuff. Um, what, if we, what if we auctioned £100 on eBay? What would happen? 
And we looked into the terms and conditions and it, it said you couldn't sell small arms and you couldn't smell, sell uh, children and you couldn't sell money. So we thought, well, oh. but we wondered, what if, what if eBay did money? What would that look like? And then we looked back in, back in history. And again, as economists, you'll know this, but you know, three, four hundred years ago, um, you know, if I was an entrepreneur um, you know, and, and I wanted to fund, you know, f- fund some weird dream I had about going off to the West Indies and discovering nutmeg, Probably what I would have done is gone and hung out in a forerunner of Starbucks, you know, a coffee shop down in the docks of London, and hopefully sort of come across a financier there, told him my dream, told him my plan, and got him to back, back him, got him to back my company. And of course, as, as the world's progressed, at some point someone invented a clever thing called the bond market, um, which until recently was very liquid, very transparent, you know, globally traded all over the place. Um, and that was how companies... Um, uh, effectively borrowed, borrowed money or how people lent to companies uh, to a large extent. And we asked ourselves, well, um, <coughs> we asked ourselves, what if individuals could do that? You know, what if there was a bond market for individuals? And we thought that would be fascinating because it would rip the guts out of a bank and give, give the power back to the individual, which seemed to be what was going on in the world. So I could say, hello, I'm James, this is me, you know, here's my data, this is everything you need to know about me. And by the way, it's verified over here. Um, who wants to lend me money? And then the last, our last input was, was just the observation that people have been lending and borrowing for years um, within families, within communities. Um, when I went to business school, I needed to borrow some money to go there. I didn't have the funds to do it. I went to Lloyd's Bank and said, hello, Lloyd's, can you fund me? And they said, yes, James, we can, but you're going to have to take all the money today. It's going to cost you 12%, and you've got to pay it back over three years, and these are the installments. And then I remembered I had, had parents. So I, I rang up mum and dad, said, hello mum, hello dad. Um, any chance I could borrow some money? Um, and they said yes, but my dad was Scottish. And he said, he said I'll tell you what, um, we'll do it like this. Um, you know, he was earning 4% on his savings account. He said, if you pay me 6 then you'll be 6% happy and I'll be 2% happy. And bang, let's do a deal. So that's what we did. And I paid him back. And the best thing was I could take the money when I needed it, which is actually what I wanted. I needed it for cash flow. And I could pay it back when I had it. So if Aunt Ethel died or if I got a lucky bonus or if I didn't have any money, then that wasn't so much of a problem as it might have been with the bank. And a clever guy called Dave Nicholson took, took all of those ideas um, and put them together and, and came up with Zopa. So Zopa um, is an online marketplace where people meet to lend and borrow money. And because it cuts out banks, everyone gets a better deal. Um, and the economic reason why uh, Zopa works is, is twofold. Um, uh, as you probably know, and in fact almost certainly do know after the last few years, banks, banks are regulated. Um, and you know, roughly, uh, when banks lend a pound in order to protect the depositors that have put the money into the bank, they have to keep a certain amount of money in their back pocket. And on the cost of an average loan, um, that capital adequacy um, requirement um, increases the cost of a loan by about half or 1%. And because Zopa is not a bank, um, and the technical reason for that is it never takes money onto its own balance sheet, it doesn't get regulated in that way uh, as a bank. And so therefore that capital cost comes out of the equation um, and the efficiency, if you like, can be, can be given back to the uh, consumer. Um, the second aspect of it was um, a, a, um, an operating efficiency. So we were initially three people in a barn um, somewhere outside of London. Um, and then when we launched, we were about 10 people um, you know, in, a, in, a, in a rented office um, you know, with, our, with some software that we'd built 
but plugging into a whole bunch of uh, existing systems on which we could effectively buy marginal capacity <coughs> of things like payments um, or security. And we didn't have the legacy infrastructure of branches all around the country of shiny great big towers in Canary Wharf or legacy people. And so we, even at a very small scale, we were able to operate very efficiently. Um, what we offered to people was uh, financial reward plus social return. So from a lender's perspective, um, they could borrow money, they could get a better return, um, but they could also see where their money was going and feel more in touch with it. So for most people, all they cared about was the financial return. But for some people, they wanted to know who they were funding, what were the individuals. On the, um, on the borrower side, they felt better because they got great rates, um, because they cut out the banks, because it felt fairer, and because they knew that when they were paying interest, they were paying it back to other individuals, and that felt better to them than the bank. So the way the service worked is as a lender, you came in, um, you were asked how much do you want to lend, and you could lend from £10 to a gazillion, if you happen to have a gazillion kicking around, um, over what time period, and to who, where who was defined as a level of risk. And we only lent to people who were prime, so you know, the top 50% of, of UK borrowers. Um, and then borrowers came in on the other side. And, so, and lastly, you were asked, at what rate do you want to lend? So as a lender, you set your own rate. And we basically said, look, if you're lending to a person like that, you know, who's a very, good, uh, a very good risk, and you're lending to them over three years, then the chances of them not repaying you are 2%. And that 2% was added on to the return that you were looking for. And then what happened on the other side was borrowers came in um, they, they were also identified and verified. Uh, they were credit assessed uh, by us. Um, they were then shown to an appropriate market for their level of risk and their term, and then they took the cheapest money off the table. And effectively, what the Zopa system did was administer all of those payments and then collect it back. And if, for example, uh, a lender didn't repay, then, oh sorry, a borrower didn't repay, then Zopa, on behalf of the, lend- the lender, would go and, go and collect that money on their behalf. Our vision for this business. Um, back in 2005 when we launched was somewhat daft Um, our vision was that people could trust people with money a daft vision and it came out of sort of asking uh, my children to sort of draw a bank you know Louis Robin please draw a bank and um, and what they would always do was was to draw a box and put some bars on the window sort of write bank on it um, and we kind of thought, well, why on earth? Why on earth is a bank set up to, you know, to provide a service that's um, effectively set up for the 0.2% of people who are bad rather than the 99.8% of people who are good? And what if, what if people could trust people with money? And that's what, that's what Zopa was founded on. Um, we've been going for, what, five years now, I guess. Um, and uh, it's still small. We haven't transformed the world by, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there's about £70 million has kind of gone through the market. Um, borrowers today are getting you know, the cheapest loans in the country. Um, lender returns since launch are uh, in excess of 8%. Um, non-repayment from borrowers back to lenders, which is taken into account uh, in, in that sort of more than 8% uh, return, um, have, have been less than 1%. So we've been very strict on, on the borrowers that, if you like, are allow, allowed into the market. Um, we launched and closed in the US. Um, effectively, we, we pursued a different model in the US um, that when the credit crunch came uh, meant that we, we had to pull out. Um, we launched in Italy, and we got a, a nascent uh, JV uh, in Japan. 
And the, the core to Zopa is it's working because of Zopa's members' relationship with, with the business. So right from day one, um, we were at great pains to make ourselves very open, very transparent. So everything from, and you can do this when you're small, but giving out emails, giving out you know, mobile numbers, speaking to as many borrowers as you can. Right from day one, um, we offered those people that were putting money into the business um, some equity in the business. So they felt they had a stake in it. Right from day one, we um, had a blog and an open discussion board. Now today you think, so what? Can you imagine HSBC having an open discussion board on its website? You know, the compliance people, the regulatory people would do their nut. Now our view was like, why on earth? And and I'm sure you'll all share this. Why on earth would you try and cut yourselves away from your customers? Why wouldn't you share? Because I'll tell you one thing. When you do things that are right, they praise you. Um, And when you get things wrong, you get told about them like that. And if you get told about them and it's public, you do something about it to fix it pretty quickly as well. And those people are the source of some of the best ideas out there. Of course they are. They spend inordinate amounts of time, surprisingly, some of them, thinking about your business, thinking about how they can help you. We made ourselves available. We used to go around the country and uh, sit in pubs in the evening and say, hi, we're going to be in Nottingham tonight. Please come along and say hello. And incredibly, people showed up. On our first birthday, people brought presents into our office. It was bizarre, a birthday present for us. And we hadn't even really said where our office was. I didn't quite know where they got our address from. Um, we, we took great care with our language, with our communications, with our tone of voice. Um, we made all of the data available from day one. So lots and lots of things that today, I guess, would see normal, but, but at the time weren't. Um, but the core was that people could trust people with money and that we needed to be very, very open and very transparent with it. Um, since we launched, um, there are now lots of um, businesses doing something vaguely the same all over the world. Um, so the Zopa model is you know, currently live, uh, I think, in about 15 or 20 countries um, with quite a few competitors um, and also proliferation into different niches, um, as you'd expect. So businesses that are set up just to fund students, businesses that are set up to fund uh, SMEs, etc. Uh, I'd imagine that that, would, that that will continue. Um, what, what did I learn in doing this? Um, all, all sorts of things. Um, yeah, getting really clear on, on your insights and challenge, challenging everything. So many times in companies, businesses do huge amounts of research, but actually the insights and the insight that they're drawing on, that they're learning on, um, is often thin in the ground. Um, so taking yourselves out of the industry, looking back on what it is that you're trying to do and creating something new. Um, when I was in Egg um, and... Prior to that, I, I always thought that as a company, if you, if you wanted something, you sort of had to pay for it. And I guess when I left Egg and found myself you know, hanging out in coffee shops around London, um, it became very obvious to me and very clear that all I had to do was go and ask people because I had nothing else. And it's amazing if you bring up people and say, please, will you help me? It's amazing what a human response that, that sort of elicits. People, people do help. and People normally want to help each other. Um, and it's amazing how much you can get just by, just by asking, asking for help. Um, the importance of trust as, as we set the business up. You know, Zopa was all about people's money. It's a really, really hard thing to try and generate. Um, but trust for me is about saying what you're going to do and then continuing to deliver on it, always. And if you do that and keep doing that, then people will trust you. Um, a, a comment I'll come back to you later. Um, 
just a belief that great groups of committed people can, can achieve amazing things. I'm not saying that you know, what I achieved, we achieved, was amazing. But just a belief, because when we came up with Zopa, and I spoke to many of my friends and many of my sort of former colleagues at Egg, everyone said, you can't do this. It's not possible. These are the reasons why you can't do it. And actually, we just believed that we could. And that there wasn't a reason why we couldn't. Um, and so we just struggled and struggled and struggled to find that. And did that by unleashing individuals' talent. So I personally have a belief that in many businesses, um, even though they don't intend doing that, time doing is telling people what they're bad at rather than celebrating what they're great at. And I really believe that if you actually liberate people to be the best they can and allow them to find those opportunities where they can be at their best, then actually you can achieve incredible things. And all of you in your lives will have had times when you just feel you're absolutely flying on whatever it is. It's a subject, it's a course, it's a, I don't know, doing sport, whatever it is. There are times when you just feel fantastic. And I think the trick for any company, any employer, is to actually help people be at their their best as much as you can. Now I'm going to move on. So I I left SOPA about two and a half years ago. And... um, as I, as I left, um, uh, I went back home, uh, and my parents lived down in Portsmouth, and uh, this is a picture of a slightly grotty marsh just outside Portsmouth called Farlington Marshes. Um, and I'm a bird watcher, um, and I found myself wandering around the marsh looking at birds, because that's what bird watchers do. Um, and I was amazed. I kept seeing this bird. Uh, this is a really bad picture. Uh, I hate the bird. It's not mine. Um, of of a, a bird called a little egret. Um, now, a little egret is like a heron, but it's white. Um, and wherever you've travelled around the world, you, you may well have seen these things because they basically they live around most of the world. Now, when I was a kid, you couldn't see one of these in England for love nor money. You'd maybe get one a year. And I was at the marshes in the middle of winter, um, and at that time of year they should be further south, um, and there were 40 wintering uh, on the marsh in the middle of winter. Um, and uh, this, to me... Uh, was all the evidence that I needed that, um, that global warming was going on. Um, and there were various papers about you know, whether, or the, whether or not that was the case. And I know some very eminent people from here. And at the time, the debate around global warming was, was sort of, uh, I, I guess, sort of increasing, uh, increasing by the moment. Um, and I got pretty clear that, you know what, regardless of whether the science was true or not, actually, if you did believe, if you did believe in uh, sort of what was going on here, and if you did believe in... In, in the future of a slightly different world, then actually it didn't matter whether it was right or wrong. Actually, you could make a hell of a lot of things a lot better um, by sort of acting on it. And as I sort of researched more and more and more, you know, and I, I, I saw growth in population, I saw pressure on food, on resources, on water, on oil, you name it, um, I kind of got really convinced that, that something needed to change. And um, this is a picture that I'll explain in a minute. But... Um, I got pretty clear that we, what, what we're participating in right now um, is the end of that last era, the end of that last sort of um, Schumpeterian era, if you like, the age of oil and mass production and mass distribution um, uh, and mass consumerization uh, in, that, we, that we sort of lived in, you know, the age of oil and the promise of all of the consumerism uh, in, if you like, a world of abundance. And it's, it's very easy to, to say that today, but we no longer trust it, I don't think, or I don't, um, and the promises and the common sense that went along with it. 
Um, for many people in, I'm 40, um, and for many people in my generation, um, the world has looked like this. It's looked like an abundance. Um, so this is a terrible pun, but we, we actually found this when we were uh, in the barn all those years ago. Um, but it's been an abundance of work. You know, my generation has pretty much known um, you know, pretty, pretty good levels of employment, an abundance of resource, um, an abundance of credit. Actually, we've just been able to borrow. Um, you know, work resources, they, they became a right. They're actually sort of, they were your right. It was your right to be able to borrow. Um, we were taught to indulge and to use indulgences. I was at a company that, that came up with, in the UK anyway, you know, a marvellous thing, the zero-zero balance transfer on credit cards. What a preposterous notion that is. It's almost like you can absolve yourself from the credit you've got yourself into. Again, the banking industry came up with things like self-certification on mortgages. So you could basically self-certify how much, how much money you earned so that you could then borrow however much money you wanted. Um, and I think we, that we know that that abundance is false, um, was predicated on a full set of you know, beliefs and assumptions that we don't believe. And I think we can see peak oil, um, we can see climate change, we can see population growth and the pressure that that's putting on energy supplies, on food, on water, um, on global security, and for many now, on lives and businesses uh, and livelihoods. And again, going back to the, um, the, the socio-economist work, um, what we saw is that in each of those eras, new common senses had emerged for actually what was the right way to operate. And you can sort of drill into this in, in sort of business terms. Um, and I, I think that the innovative application of whatever the new emerging common sense is going to be will be where uh, a large source of growth and success will come from. Now, I'm not a seance, um, but I think the common sense will look like, as individuals, us moving away from being defined by our, um, by our consumption to being defined by our values, by our ethos, by our social networks. I think we'll shift to much more conscious consumerism. Um, you know, did you know, for example, that many of the, the posh shops in New York now, rather than walking out with you holding your sort of branded swanky bag, they actually now give you your goods in, in brown paper bags so people can feel a bit more comfortable about what they've bought, which I think is quite insightful. Um, individuals and governments and companies, I think, and I think you can, to some extent, see it in some of the politics going on in the UK right now, will lead, need to lead on a, on a new morality. Um, um, and I think it's possible, if you look back to some of the changes that happened immediately you know, during and after the Second World War, you know, of how people can behave and live, I, I think it's quite pertinent. And again, if you look at, for example, my parents' generation, their values and their ethos is very different to, to, to our own. I think we'll move from seeking the promise of happiness in the future to, um, uh, to seeking much more fulfilled lives on a day-to-day basis uh, today. I think we'll reject borrowing today in order, in, in, in order um, to pay for the future. And I think we'll embrace a much more individual uh, and collective responsibility. I think we'll move from growth being defined by economic production so that measure, that GDP measure, um, to the wealth being defined much more by sustainable wealth. Um, and that doesn't imply less. Um, on the contrary, I think it implies more, um, you know, more of something else, more time, more well-being. Uh, again, as economists, you'll, you'll know this better than me, but I don't believe that Adam Smith and his Wealth of Nations um, didn't define wealth solely in financial terms. But somehow over the last era, we've, we've shifted 
until that became the way that we look at it. I think we'll move from an era in which there's a, been a global tragedy of the commons um, into what, one in which communalism reigns. Um, I think we'll move from big, inefficient control, top-down uh, control and command structures to much more nimble, um, much more network-based systems and organisations. And this, none of this implies there won't be big companies, but I think that those uh, that, that are large will be structured in very different ways, much more as sort of networked amalgamations. And successful brands will no longer be marks, uh, as perhaps they were in the 70s and 80s, but I think they'll stand for a much deeper, a deeper way of thinking, a deeper philosophy on a better way to live. When I left SOPA, um, I was lucky enough to uh, team up with uh, two guys, a guy called Andy Hobsbawm and a guy called Narasham Chandani, who um, uh, were both very experienced marketeers. Um, Andy set up uh, large agencies like agency.com. Narash was a, uh, a founder, uh, founding creative director uh, of some of London's leading agencies. And um, uh, our observation was that um, everyone was aware of um, the environment and sustainability is a topic, but if you, if you looked at most people's behaviour, it had changed very little. And we decided well, what we wanted to do was to take those people who were inclined to be a bit more green or who occasionally were and try and shift them to the, more, to the right more quickly than they otherwise might. Not that we believe we could do that on our own, but that we wanted to play uh, a small part in doing that. And our observation was that if you looked around at the issue was being communicated, it typically came out from a number of schools of thought. Um, so there was an awful lot of activism going on. But for activism, it turned most people off. Um, there was an awful lot of doom and gloom. Um, and that, that scariness tended to paralyse people rather than mobilise people. Um, there was a lot of top-down communication from government, from big business, even from celebrity. Um, but people don't like being told what to do. And an awful lot of... Um, difficult topics to try and get your head around. So trying to simplify through that was very hard. Um, and also people were very busy, so only had a nanosecond to think about this stuff anyway. And we asked ourselves, well, you know, why is it? Why is it that people will queue down the high street to get the latest iPhone or the latest Mac thing? Um, you know, why do they do that when these same people can't be bothered to turn the lights off? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And we gave ourselves a marketing brief, which was... What if you could reposition sustainability as an issue, away from it being something that people feel they ought to do, into the territory of, actually, it's something I want to do, and move it out of some kind of citizen obligation to planet Earth and living in the bit of the brain that's around admin and chores and dull stuff, and instead put it into the space of pleasure and leisure and desire and fun, and through that, create a, um, you know, a smart, aspirational brand that stands for a different way of living and move it out of the preserve of you know, abnormal tree-hugging hair-shirted weirdos. Um, so our little contribution to this was a, was a, was, was a brand, uh, Green Thing. Um, and Green Thing is a, it's a not-for-profit organisation. Andy Narish and I um, don't get paid for, for, for doing this. Um, and it's a public service. Um, so, so we're set up uh, solely to inspire people to, to lead a greener life. And because we weren't gurus in this space, we partnered with um, a load of people who were um, that had a very sort of deep background in this and could help, help us understand the science, could keep us up to speed with the latest science, could make sure that we weren't doing daft things. And with them, we created seven green things that people could choose to do. And 
rather than sort of language them in, in sort of deep in science, we tried to come up with little bits of, um, uh, if you like, communication or, or, or words that, that stood for um, leading, leading a different life. And collectively, these add up to a more sustainable, sustainable life. So the one at the top left, something like, you know, resist the urge to buy the, buy the latest and stick with what you've got. So actually, how do you start to shift the value system such that actually having the old thing that still works is as cool as having the new shiny thing? Um, anyway, I'm going to let Green Thing introduce you to those seven actions. People say to me, Green Thing, how hard is it to do your green things? And I always say, when you care, nothing's hard. When a nice-looking girl says to you, hey, I'll give you a kiss if you drive me to college, you say, that would be nice, but I'm walking the walk. And when Michael O'Leary and Steve Jobs try to tempt you with their cheap flights and their shiny new gadgets, just say, you know what, Mike, I'd rather stay grounded. And Steve, I'm really happy to stick with what I've got. It's not that hard. How hard is it to all consume things like those leftovers in the fridge? How hard is it to use less central heating and more human heat? You know, and when things don't need to be on, how hard is it to plug out? But there's one green thing I find hard. I love steak. Steak with onions, steak with pepper sauce. But I also love my gorgeous vegetarian girlfriend. So for her, I go easy on the meat. So how hard is it to do these green things? Well, if you don't want your self-esteem to look like this, or your world to look like this, then it's pretty easy. pretending to be Pixar, which we're clearly not. <coughs> um, so what we do is, uh, through the course of a year, we basically uh, we go around and alight on, on those seven green actions and, and bring them to life. So uh, in the case of something like uh, Walk the Walk, um, which is obviously all about inspiring you uh, to, to uh, ultimately sort of get out of the car, we'll introduce the topic through email, through Twitter, uh, through mobile phones, uh, and then lead with a piece of creative content that might go something like this. You know, said the man, rather than drive today, I'm going to walk. And so he walked. And as he walked, he saw things, strange and wonderful things he would not otherwise have seen. A deer with an itchy leg, a flying motorcycle, father and daughter separated from a bicycle by a mysterious wall. And then he stopped. Walking in front of him was her. The woman who as a child had skipped with him through fields and broken his heart. Sure, she'd aged a little. In fact, she'd aged a lot. But he felt all his old passion for her return. Ford, he called softly. That was her name. Don't say another word, Gusty, she said. For that was his name. I know a tent next to a caravan exactly 300 yards from here. Let's go there and make love. In the tent, Ford undressed. She spread one leg and then the other. Gusty entered her boldly and made love to her rhythmically while she filmed him because she was a keen amateur pornographer. The earth moved for both of them and they lived together happily ever after and all because he decided to walk that day. So what we put around that is then more creative content to help inspire you to do the action. So in this case, we had a, a, a series of um, podcasts or walkcasts, as we called them, 
Um, so one was, uh, uh, well, we got 12 musicians to write music to 105 beats per minute because we work, walked out by sort of walking around one of our kitchens at a great walking speed was 105 beats per minute. And then we asked all these artists to create music to 105 beats. We then got someone uber cool, so I'm told, a guy called Howie B, uh, to, to mix all this stuff together and then you could basically download it and listen to it on your iPod as you walked. Uh, another was a series of short stories by uh, famous authors, again, around walking and thoughts on walking uh, and poets that you could listen to as you went. Um, what we also do is then introduce people to wider topics. So in the case of Walk the Walk, it's everything from um, uh, you know, uh, walking more or cycling more or pu- using more public transport or car sharing or carpooling or owning a better car so that people can explore um, the issue in, 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 a, in, in uh, more depth. And we also provide the opportunity for the community of people that are choosing to lead a greener life to share their stories about it, to inspire other people. Um, so uh, our clever technical person is Red, who's sitting there, um, who makes all this possible and um, allows all of, all of those stories to sort of go up. Um, our mantra is, is the notion of creativity versus climate change. Uh, so our thought is, um, if you could take some of the world's best creative talent and put that together with some you know, sassy advertising and marketing mouse, then surely you ought to be able to communicate this issue and get through to people and inspire them to act in a very different way. I mean, after all, marketers are fantastic at getting us to change our behaviour. And we kind of thought this world's slightly unbalanced, isn't it? You think of how much love and... Well, not necessarily love, how much attention and money gets poured into you know, inspiring us to buy the latest car. It's sort of unfair, isn't it? You know, this sort of buy red car or you know, candle in the cave it sort of doesn't quite make sense. So what we wanted to do was, was to bring this topic alive in a very different way. And so we're very lucky. We're, we're, um, um, we're lucky to have the sort of love and passion of all sorts of writers and creators and artists and um, uh, musicians and video makers to, to help us do that. Um, one other uh, very quick example of, of something that we launched last year, um, uh, one of our seven actions is, uh, as, as I talked about, is, is um, uh, or I didn't talk about it, was all-consuming, so the art of using up everything and wasting nothing. And we were looking for uh, an idea to, to sort of bring this alive. Um, and Narish, uh, our, our creative director, had this, had this ludicrous notion that um, there's nothing more useless, is there, than one glove. So what do you do? If you've got one glove, you chuck it away. Um, and we kind of thought, well, isn't that daft? Because there's lots of one gloves in the world. So what if you could put those one gloves together and make a pair? Um, wouldn't that be good? Because it would, A, stop a lot of stuff going to landfill. It would stop all of the energy in the industry that goes into buying new gloves. And of course, this isn't going to you know, solve global warming, but it could be quite an interesting way of, of signifying people that are following a different behavior. Um, so we came up with this idea of, of glove love. Um, and I just want to show you the making of Glove Love to show you some of the things we get up to. Try 
watch the flames grow high No, it doesn't have to try It doesn't have to try Well, I won't stop all of my eyes pretending That you'll come home, you'll be coming home someday soon Put me in your blue skies Put me in your gray There's gotta be some way it's got to some way. So, take. Um, just stepping back, Green Thing's mission uh, is twofold, and that's because, as you may know, um, you and I and others around the world, through what we choose to do each day, emit half the world's CO2, and governments and businesses, through the choices they make, roughly uh, emit the other half. So, our mission is to inspire as many people as possible in as many countries as possible to begin to lead a green life. Um, and then work with that people power to get governments and businesses uh, to, to do their bit, bit more quickly than they otherwise might. Um, we've been going just over a couple of years, um, and um, you know, we've got tiny amounts of resources, but we've reached people in you know, virtually every country in the world. Um, people have, consu- have consumed the content. We've got hundreds of videos um, and other pieces of content now um, that have been consumed more than five million times. Um, and we, we take um, behaviour change very seriously, which I'll come back to in... in well, I won't come back to it, actually. I'm going to skip over it. But um, we, we measure the impact that we're making on individuals. So we do quantitative work um, with, with a leading global uh, research company, and we think we've inspired about a million tonnes of CO2 saved uh, through that. Um, and we spent virtually zero on marketing. Um, so, again, incredible what you can do um, you know, online these days in reaching people very cheaply, uh, very efficiently. Um, we've got a brand that people uh, love, uh, and very importantly, people, people trust it. Um, and as I said, it is, it is uh, changing people's behaviour, um, which is what we set out to do, and that's really important to us. Um, again, a few things I learned, um, really similar things. Again, get really clear on your insights. So it's a green thing was all about, um, actually, there is something that we can add. Creativity versus climate change can make a difference here. Um, the importance of asking for help. Again, absolutely you know, resource-constrained, um, uh, but asking people to help you, asking people for support, um, being your vision of values. So we've been offered lots of money from large companies um, that we turn, turn down because we think that they don't fit with what we're, you know, the brand and what we're trying to do. We're very clear and very transparent about what, what in our view, is acceptable for the brand and, and, and what is not. Um, Again, great groups of committed people can achieve amazing things. If you can find people and align them around a vision, um, then, then phenomenal uh, what, what, what's possible to make happen. Um, and also you know, a focus, real focus on, on what's the experience you're trying to deliver uh, for people. Um, I, I called this talk, what, what World Do You See? So John kindly said I could call it whatever I wanted and speak about whatever I wanted. Um, when, when I was at Egg, um, I was very lucky and had... Um, no, I had a couple of business coaches that, that helped me. So, so I don't know how many of you are familiar with coaching, but this sort of wacky world that actually you can, you can be coached to have a better life perhaps than, than you might on your own, um, which I guess stands up for some people to, to some scrutiny. And I remember a session that I had with, with one of my coaches where um, she basically said, James, I'm going to help you design your future or, or something like that. And um, to, to cut a long story short, she, she took me off and we, we, went, we went and sat on a hill somewhere. Um, and she said, I'm going to metaphorically and physically take you up this hill and I want, to, want you to shut your eyes at the top of this hill. Um, and I want you to think you know, 30 years in advance 
Um, and I want you to really concentrate and really think about it for about 20 minutes. And then I want you to describe the world that you see. So it was a visioning exercise. And the world that I said I saw was a world of people helping one another to achieve their potential uh, in a beautiful environment. And, and those words for me meant something very particular. And actually, if I look back on what I've done since my time at Egg, it's been in various ways stepping stones on, on helping me do that. Um, so I'm now a, a trustee for the RSPB. I work as a freelance consultant. I support Green Thing um, and, and still have an interest in, in Zopa. Um, but, but I wondered coming here tonight, as many of you are thinking about what you do next, I, I wonder if it's almost worth asking yourself a similar question. Actually, what world do you see? What world do you want to help create? And whether that might provide you with an anchor as you set out on, on your journey. Or another way of asking it, what if your 80-year-old self could speak to you today and give you some advice? What advice might that be? In business, I'd urge people to never forget it's about your customers. Really, really, really easy to forget about your customers in your work on a day-to-day basis. That's all that matters. And a, a quote, you might have come across it before, from uh, a US cultural anthropologist called Margaret Mead, which I love. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you. <laughs>